Well, we will continue in our Even If uh, series this morning. Before uh, we jump in, I want to highlight, um, if you've been watching the news, you've seen all that's going on in Afghanistan. And uh, with kind of the turmoil there, uh, we're seeing lots of refugees come uh, to our area through IRC and LSS, these two organizations that help uh, place and care for refugees. And uh, so there are ways for you to plug in uh, as well and serve and help and care for these folks as they arise in a very vulnerable position. So uh, Annie Key, A-N-N-I-E-K-E-E at gmail.com is our contact uh, for that. Annie's a member here at the well and has been spearheading some work um, and just has a couple very tangible, very easy, but very impactful ways to serve right away. Uh, so uh, please email her and you'll get all the details for uh, those things and how to serve. Yes. Oh, Annie M. Key. Thank you, Annie M. Key, for that. Annie, online, uh, if you're watching, Annie M. Don't forget that M. Key at Gmail. I'm, my autocomplete must be wrong on my email. Thanks for catching that, Annie. Even if faith. I received uh, this text uh, two days ago. Bro, bad news, but some positivity thrown in. I feel terrible, I'm just now telling you. I have a story to tell you, and it starts with, Sue had a mammogram a couple weeks ago. She noticed some changes, went in soon after. After a biopsy, it came back as cancer. We just got the markers back today, and for the most part, they look favorable, which means she most likely won't need chemo. She's likely going to have a double mastectomy and reconstruction soon. She's holding up well. The kids seem to be processing it okay. She's going to be okay, but there's a bit of a row to hoe ahead for us. Please pray for us. Love you, bud. Sorry I'm telling you via text, but I'm conversation and cried out. Let's talk in a few days. What do you do in moments like that when your expectations of how the future will go or what today is like or even what's happened in the past when your expectations go unmet? Uh, when this gap is created and, and you have this question in your faith of, will I continue to follow my God? Is he able? Is he good? Is he present? Will I keep following him even if this is my situation in life? What do we do in those moments? Because a gap is created because uh, between what we desire, what we expect, how we want our lives to go, and how it actually goes. And, and we've been looking at the truths of the scriptures found uh, in Daniel chapter 3 and the surrounding passages, and, and as uh, Pastor Mitchell expounds on them in his book, Even If. I'll read again the subtitle of the book because I think it captures this moment, Trusting God. When life disappoints, overwhelms, or just doesn't make sense. Uh, what happens to us? We, we looked uh, extensively at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego last week. And, and we saw in them uh, uh, three uh, teenagers, really, when they were uh, faced with this choice of bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar or 
be thrown into this fiery furnace, they said, you know what? Our God is able to save and rescue us. But even if he doesn't, even if we burn in that fiery furnace, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not worship you. We will worship our God and follow him even if. See, when this gap arises in a moment in today or a condition that we place in our faith today or, or, or when we look back at our life in, in the past or when we look forward, when there's these gaps of uh, what we expect and what actually occurs, what often fills them is counterfeit faith. A faith that takes our eyes off of our God and on ourself and on the thing that we most want and, and a faith that is placed there rather than on Him his ability, his goodness, his love, his presence with us. I see, even if faith turns into only if, only if, only if, Lord, you do this for me, will I keep following you? Or, or it turns into if only, when we look back, if only this had occurred or that had occurred or you hadn't done that, then I would follow you. Or, or it turns into what if as our faith looks forward and what if that occurs and this gap occurs, will we keep following our God? We're just going to hone in on that one, that condition of today. That you and I find ourselves so just naturally and normally and our inclination keeps going towards this only if conditional faith today. Uh, Only if you take away the cancer. Only if you give a spouse. Only if you give a child and his life or her life goes this way. Only then will I follow you. And only if faith, the conditional faith of today. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Well, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar. A pagan god of Babylon declaring what is true. A pagan leader declaring what is true of the one true God. We'll look at his declaration and then we'll say, but how and why do we keep following back into this conditional only if kind of faith in our lives? And then we'll just ask ourselves, how do we kill this conditional faith? How do we kill this conditional faith? Nebuchadnezzar's declaration of what is true of the one true God that creates an, only, an even if faith. And, and then how and why do we keep falling back into a conditional faith? And then how do we kill this thing, this conditional faith, and follow God in every up and down and gap of our lives? So let's look at this. This is Nebuchadnezzar's declaration of what is true of the one true God. It's found in the scripture we read this morning, chapter 4, verses 34 and following of Daniel. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. He's about to die. And my reason returned to me. I love that little phrase, my reason returned to me. (laughs) 
I started seeing clearly at the end of my life. Uh, he, he had actually kind of gone a bit crazy, and God had uh, put them in this place, put Nebuchadnezzar in this place of humility because God is doing something where his kingdom uh, will overcome Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And, and all this uh, timeline of Nebuchadnezzar's reign is really under God's reign. And, and now Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of his life, he, he, his reason returns to me. He sees clearly of who the one true God is and what he is all about and what he is doing. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. I'm about to die. This one lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Do you see the first declaration is the scope of, of the one true God's sovereignty over all time. From, from the beginning of time, before there was time, to the end of time, when the, there is no time, all of eternity, our God reigns, Nebuchadnezzar says. The sovereign one from beginning to end, all times, the scope of time, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. His scope is not just from, uh, from all uh, eternity past to all eternity future, but his scope is from here to there, from, from kings and kingdoms to the very minutes of your life and my life. Nebuchadnezzar declares it. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? <laughs> No one can stop the plans of our sovereign God, which is no comfort if he is not, if he is not good. But we know he is good. Our God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms in the minutes of our day. Uh, the book of Daniel is built to proclaim this truth. The book of Daniel is built to proclaim this truth. It's cut in halves. The chapters 1 to 6 uh, show the narrative of, of the life of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And uh, really, uh, these teenagers who are living their faith out in front of this uh, situation where it looks like uh, this pagan God is coming to do his will and bring his will on the earth. When, when really, uh, the whole time, the sovereign God is still orchestrating even what looks like a catastrophe. The, the narrative of the life of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, uh, it, it shows how we live in, uh, in the faithfulness of our sovereign God. We looked uh, predominantly at, at this one passage last week when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before Nebuchadnezzar the king. And they say this in verse 17 as they live out their faithfulness. Now, remember, keep in mind, uh, this, this pagan king of Babylon has come and captured God's people. Assyria had captured a part of God's people. Now Babylon comes in and swallows Assyria up and swallows all of uh, Judah up and Jerusalem. And, and God's people are uh, pillaged. The things of the temple are taken. Uh, uh, God's people are, are taken as slaves and renamed and re-educated. And every expectation of how they saw life going now is, is widening this gap of how it is actually going. But in chapters 1 to 6, we see uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego keep living faithfully. Why? Because in the moment of the furnace, here's what they say. If this be so, our God, whom is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Our God is able to do as he pleases. 
When it comes to ability, we know who our God is in the face of you and every other event we think has control. When it doesn't, our God is able. He is sovereign. But if not, they say, be it known. If we burn, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is not a statement of ability now. This is a statement of character. Our God is not just able, but he is good and we trust him. Even when it looks like he's not trustworthy. From our own perspectives. Chapters 1 to 6 show a narrative of a life lived in faithfulness to God, even if he doesn't give what we think he ought to give. He is still sovereign. He is still able, good, and with us, worthy of our trust and love and adoration and worship. Chapters 7 to 12 then are a prophecy after prophecy as Daniel stands before king after king. First it's Nebuchadnezzar, then it's Belshazzar, then it's Darius, and, and then it's the Persian kings, right? And, and over and over when we see this kind of up and down of all these pagan rulers and how it goes for God's people, and everyone stands with this gap saying, these are not the expectations, this is not what I signed up for. What we see is prophecy after prophecy shouting what has just been lived. Our God is still sovereign. Our God is still good. Our God is still with us. The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, the Son of God, still rules and will rule forever. Prophecy after prophecy proclaimed. This one in chapter 7, I think, summarizes it well. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey him. He is king. Which is a great comfort when the gap of unmet expectations come into our lives. Not that we would understand what is going on, but we would know he is still in control even in this. He is still in control. When we doubt it, we can be reminded of the things that we looked at last week. Our God is able and good. When, when the sample size of our life is just a bit too small, we need to step back and be reminded by this is the God of the scriptures. We look at his story all through the scriptures and we see, man, he, I know, and we tell ourselves, we preach to ourselves, he is able, he is good, he is with us. Why? Because I see his story being carried out in the scriptures when it looks like even on the cross, he is out of control, he is working his good and mighty purposes. And the God of the saints, we look around and increase our sample size, and, and maybe our story doesn't seem to be shouting it right now. And we don't, we're not even living it right now, but we talk to those around us, and we're reminded, man, our God has been good in their stories over time. We remind each other over and over of his sovereignty, his goodness, his presence. And then we even look to our own stories and we see, man, I thought way back here when this happened in my life that you weren't good and you weren't able. But then we're reminded as we look back and we see his faithfulness, sometimes just to carry us in the struggle, we're reminded he is, he is able. You are good. You are with me. I've seen it. We're reminded last week that his, his presence never leaves us. In the gap of unmet expectations, that our, that our God who is sovereign and able and good is always with us in it. And, and sometimes in the struggle and in the low times, that's when we most sense his intimate presence. 
Then we see his transforming presence shaping us into the likeness and the image of his son. We, we see his redeeming presence sometimes of, of how he took this event there and used it for his good here. Or in heaven we'll see, man, now it makes sense what you are doing. How are you redeeming that brokenness? Sometimes we don't even realize his restraining presence, how he is keeping things that, that could have been even greater calamity in our lives from hitting us. And we know we have his ushering presence walking us into eternity with him when all things will be made right and every tear will be dried. Man, we will praise our God and say, you are so good. The pagan king of Babylon declared it. <laughs> you are God of gods, king of kings, king over kingdoms, and in every minute of my life. The pagan king of Babylon declared it. <laughs> I mean, I love how the text says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, who? Nebuchadnezzar. I'm, I'm the pagan king of Babylon, praising and extolling and honoring the king of heaven. Yet, in affront to this truth, what we see in our own lives, what I see in my own life, is a continual return to a conditional faith. When even if, even if this does not occur, if this gap hits in my life of what I desire, what I want, when an even if shifts really to only if. Only if, Lord, you do this today. And sometimes I don't say it explicitly, right? Uh, but but I, I live it out. Uh, only if you do this today. Will I continue in faithfulness to worship you, to follow you, to be yours only if? A lot of the explanations and illustrations are coming straight from chapter 4 in the book Even If by Mitchell Lee. He says this, and maybe you can relate at the end of a hard day, right? This shift from even if faith to only if. Today, uh, a conditional faith. If you do this, I will keep following you. It even happens in the mundane. See if you can relate. I send off my final email and am excited to get home and relax. The swoosh as the email disappears signals the end of the day like the closing bell of the stock market. I quickly review my day. Meetings, they went fairly well. The counseling session I led seemed to be helpful. Study time was filled with a few rabbit trails, but not more than usual. And at least I have the beginnings of a sermon to show for it. I wish I could have had that one conversation back, but I did the best I could. Overall, not a bad day. Beyond these few highlights and one real low light, I am too brain dead to think about much else, and I conclude, I've worked so hard today, I deserve a little rest. And if I'm honest with myself, I think I even desire a little acknowledgement for a hard day's work. I pack up my stuff, set my desk in order, and head home, lingering on the thought of what I deserve as compensation for my labors. With each minute of my commute home, my sense of entitlement expands. My desire for rest and validation fuels vision of me time and leisure, fading out of responsibilities awaiting me at home. I, it would be nice when I get home to get some rest and appreciation, and it grows into a need for rest and appreciation. By the time I get to my driveway, the desire to need has become a full-on decree demand. 
I will get the rest and appreciation I deserve. After all, I reason to myself, it's a simple expectation. Nothing more than a hard-working, sacrificial servant like myself deserves. At the height of my quasi-delusional fantasy, I actually imagine my kids and wife dropping what they're doing at the sound of the garage door opening, forming a gauntlet of praise and declaring in adoration in unison, All hail our returning Father who's changed the world today and deserves nothing more than the highest praise. Let us give him what he's earned and leave him alone. (laughs) Oh man, have I thought that a hundred (laughs) times. As I enter the house... In full-on demand, what I imagined in the car, needless to say, needless to say, reality strikes. Reality always turns out different from my imagination. Reality always turns out different from my imagination. And the tragic part of my rude awakening is that when I don't get what I demand, I meet out a punishment, usually through some combination of irritability, zoning out, withdrawing to my bedroom. But fitting consequences, of course, for a family that's so ungrateful for all that I've done for them. How does it happen? How does that movement go from you know, something that I, I really you know, desire in my life to, to now it becomes a, a need and then an expectation or a demand and then a shift into a conditional faith? You see what happened at the end of that story? It happens at the end of our life so often when the gap grows of things not going the way we want them to. We say, fine, if this is who you are, God, and this is what you've given, and this is what I didn't get, then then I'll just do whatever I want to. Forget you. I follow you only if. See, what occurs is first we have a desire, right? And and desires are good. They're God-given. Even the Psalms say that the Lord would give us the desires of our heart, right? uh, but But a desire really is often just an arrow to an ultimate need. A compass that says there's something beneath this desire that is ultimate or more core or central or, or, or prime to who you and I are, right? Our, our desires often point to our ultimate needs, but what we do is we take this desire and we attach to it deeper and ultimate satisfaction or validation in a way that says, I actually don't just desire this thing. What I, what I need is I need that thing. I need this certain relationship. I need my health to be a certain way. I need this promotion in a way. Why? Because I have attached this desire to a deeper need or ultimate satisfaction or validation. And then then I expect it. Because if God loves me, if God is able, if God is good, if God is with me, then certainly wouldn't he want me to have that? And this becomes a demand and only if faith. When our eyes go on to ourselves and our needs and the desires that, that, that we cling to for ultimate or core purposes in our life. You see, sometimes I think these, uh, these deeper needs that we attach to our desires that become then expectations and demands fall into a couple buckets. Really, the first is self-validation. It goes from, man, I would love this promotion at work. This would be, Lord, this would be amazing, right? We start in prayer, and, and, and if you gave me this, man, the scope of my influence could increase there. I could impact more people, do more excellent creative work, and, and that would be amazing, right? But then, uh, then we start thinking, and it's mulling it a bit more, and actually uh, what it becomes is I, I actually, I, 
I need this promotion because, and we don't have to attach it to the deeper, more ultimate need that it's pointing to, is because I need to prove myself. And if I had that promotion, wouldn't you know, wouldn't I know how amazing I truly am, right? Like I have, I have found myself in this thing. I'd love to have a child. And in the midst of it, there is no value in my life as a man or a woman, as a mother or a father, if I do not get this child. I'd love to have a, a growing church with, with huge influence. And we say, Lord, would you give me an expanding influence, right? I want to do your work. And, we, and then, then, though, it's tied to, and then I would have purpose. If you would just give me this and then we uh, tether a deeper or more prime or central need for validation to it, uh, then it becomes a need, a demand, an expectation. Not just, I would love this if it's your will, but, but I need this for me. And it's no longer tied to the Lord himself. The other bucket we often put this in is not just self-validation, but self-satisfaction. This gap of unmet expectations. You've heard it in the cliche kind of way he talked about it. It's shaped in a God-shaped hole. That if I just had this sort of thing in my life, then I would have peace, joy, security, satisfaction. In this relationship or that job or this house or that neighborhood or this position. Our desires turn into deeper needs and then find themselves as expectations or demands before our God when we seek in these things, the things that only our God gives ultimately. So how? How do we kill our only if faith and go back into an even if, unconditional kind of faith before our God? Killing our conditional faith. I think there's probably a no better example uh, than an unconditional faith in the person of Job in the scriptures. A person who lived out the declaration of Nebuchadnezzar of, of, of my God is able and faithful and sovereign and good in the good times and the bad times. Over this king or that king, that kingdom or that kingdom, over Biden or Trump, over this job or that job, over that child or lack of a child, over this or that, my God is good and able and present with me. Probably no one lived this out better than Job. Of course, then the Son of God, right? Job's story is an amazing one. The accuser, Satan, comes before Job. And I, I, I love how Satan says this uh, when he, he brings Job before God, right? Chapter 1, verse 9 of Job. Job comes right before the Psalms. It's uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and then you've got the Psalms and and. Satan says this to God. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Chapter 1, verse 9. Haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. 
You see what the accuser says? Hey, isn't Job just following you because you've given him every condition in his life? When, when Job said to you, I would follow you if you gave me this amazing family or these huge possessions, you just kept saying, yes, Lord. And so isn't that why he keeps following you, Satan says? And, and the Lord says, no, that's not why he keeps following me. And so uh, in, in the midst of this sovereign interplay that I don't fully understand and, and, it, and actually kind of blows my mind a bit, the Lord allows calamity to crush Job's life. Verse 13 and following, this little phrase keeps showing up while he was speaking, right? Uh, before Job comes these messengers over and over again, and while the one is still speaking terrible news to Job, another shows up with more terrible news. His sons and daughters are eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside him, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped. While he was still speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. While he was still speaking, came another. Chaldeans formed three groups. You see, his life is crumbling. His possessions are crumbling before him. How does Job respond? Verse 20. Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground in worship. He didn't respond with a smile at first. But really, through the whole book, he's mourning. This is not how he wanted his life to go. But look what he declares. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I came with nothing, I'm going to leave with nothing, and you are still my God, he says. Well, Satan, the accuser, comes before God again, and he's like, yeah, but that's only because, you know, you'd only touch the conditions of his stuff, right? Like, uh, you'd given him all his stuff, and you took it away, but, but if you touch his body, chapter 2, well, then, and then, skin for skin, all that man has, he'll give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. Inflict him with boils and scars, and that's just what occurs. And, and even Job's own wife says, would you just curse God and die? And Job says to her and to us, as a reminder, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil also? And then to pile it on top, uh, uh, Job's friends come, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they don't just have terrible names, they have terrible advice. And in one sense, generally, theologically, they're right. They're like, Job, we're sinful people, we deserve nothing, right? That's generally right, but then specifically, they're absolutely wrong. It's not uh, Job's sin that is causing this. It's not some for tit-for-tat God that Job serves, and they're not just, you know, kind of generally right, but specifically very wrong in Job's life. They are wholly unhelpful. Because Job didn't need some sort of theological lesson or some sort of, you just got to buck up, Job, and do better, and then God will be good to you. No, that's not how God works. What he needed was their presence, their care, their listening ear. In the gap, that's what we most need. That's a bit of a tangent. You know, Job declares what we all need to declare. I have nothing and deserve nothing, and I was made a child of God by grace. 
I have nothing, I deserve nothing, and I was made a child of God by grace. We say that to be true, it's only when we live through the fire that we really learn to believe it. We kill our conditional faith by killing our conditional God. Notice G is the only lowercase letter there. We kill our conditional faith. I'll only serve you if when we kill our conditional God, who's not the God of the Bible, not the Christian God. Only when we see that our God has loved us unconditionally, that his covenants, his relationship with us come before his commands to us, that he makes us sons and daughters by grace, that he rescues us from slavery to sin and death first, and, and then he, he, he radically transforms our lives that we might be uh, obedient to his commands and walk with him in the likeness and image of his son after he has made us sons and daughters by grace. Only when we see that our God has unconditionally, no strings attached, not tit for tat, loved us, will we live this unconditional faith in response to our unconditionally loving, sovereign, good, kind God who for before the creation of the world chose you and me before we did anything good or bad. He said, I want him, I want her by grace. Through faith we clung to him. We saw Jesus in all of his glory lived out this obedient life in our place, was crucified in our place. Why? To first make you a son or a daughter of the one true king who reigns sovereignly over every king, kingdom, and minute of your life. When you and I doubt it, When we want to live a conditional faith and say, only will I serve you, God, if you do this, would we remember how unconditionally he's loved us in Christ? We were owed nothing but given everything. We were owed nothing but given everything. This leads us to pray like the leper and pray like the son. To enjoy relationship like the leper and enjoy relationship like the son. See, in Luke chapter 5, we see what it in even if life full of faith because of our unconditional God looks like. This leper comes before Jesus and he says, you know, I got nothing, right? Deserve nothing, but Lord, if you will, Luke Chapter 5, verse 2, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. In this case, the Lord does. He says, I, I do will, and I, I will make you clean. And he does, and the leper's like, yeah, praise God. I deserve nothing. I was given everything. And now I even see it in my own health. Praise God. Luke chapter 22, the son prays. He's in the garden, verse 42 of chapter 22. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he prays, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the father looks at the son, and he says, I am not willing. 
And the unconditional love of God is poured out on you and me as the wrath of God is poured out on his son in our place. To make you, to make me his son or daughter, that we would never be alone, that we would know his sovereign ability and goodness and presence in every gap of our lives, when life is going amazingly or when it's going terribly. We would know he is our God. He has unconditionally loved us in his son whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled in our place. So what I want us to do when we come to communion this morning, it's to lay our desires before our Lord. But I want us to do it in this kind of format. God, if you will, I trust you. I know who you are. I know how you've loved us. I know you are sovereign. I know you are good. I know you are with me. If you will, there's something in my life I, I really do desire, Lord. Would you, would you give me this? It's a desire of my heart, and, and it's even a good desire. But then I want us to stop and in our prayer and say, Father, what I most want, and go a bit deeper. Make it explicit, that, that thing that is tethered even to that desire. It might be a good desire, but what, what's the deeper, the more ultimate need attached to it? In an easy way, as an example, you can say, I want this promotion, but, but maybe you want that promotion for security. Because if you got that paycheck, you'd be a bit more secure because your bank account would grow. Or maybe you want it for validation or to say, man, I really am worth it. I never believed I was worth it, but now I have this promotion. And so go to that deeper tethered need in an ultimate way and say, Father, I most want And then would you come back to the ultimate source of life, the God who has loved you unconditionally, met every need for you in Christ, and would you say, Jesus, you are in that same area. Come before the Lord now. Lay before him the desires of your heart, but then make explicit what's connected to that, and meet Christ in that very area, that deeper, more ultimate need. Because he has given it all for you. He has loved you unconditionally and without tether. He is not a tit for tat God. He's made you his son and daughter by the grace of Christ now and forever and met every need in him. So come before him now and enjoy who you are as his. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, would you receive Christ this morning? Would you realize these desires, these needs in your life are all pointing you to him, that he is your ultimate need, he is your ultimate desire, would you just cling to Christ this morning? But if you are a follower of Jesus, come and enjoy and remember who he is and what he's done for you, how deeply he loves you in Christ, how secure, how much purpose he's given you everything in him. Come now in prayer and rejoice over the gift of the Son. Let's take and eat together.